So today, I'm going to continue to go through my uh, systematic theology class that I've been teaching at the school. And today, I'm going to talk about the economy, everyone's favorite subject, the economy. I hope it's interesting for you. It's interesting to me. Uh, And it's really uh, cool to see that the Bible really has a lot to say about economics and what that looks like in a Christian society. So we're going to give I'm going to give you guys a quick introduction to that this morning. So before we do that, though, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, your word. Thank you for your word speaking truth into our lives. Father, I'm so thankful that your word has something to say about every area of our lives, not just things that go on in our hearts and inside of us, but things that go on in the world. And or you give guidelines and laws about how we're supposed to live. And these laws and guidelines are good for us. And so, Father, we want to eagerly listen to what you have to say about this, uh, this very important subject. So, Father, help me as I teach and or help us to have the ears to, to listen this morning. It's in Jesus name I pray. Amen. 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 So we're going to talk about the economy. So before we start talking about that, we need to give out some definitions. So what is the definition of economy? Well, the the word economy is from the Greek word uh, oikonomia, or oikonomia, which basically means house law, house law. So it comes from two other Greek words, uh, one being oikos, meaning house or household, and the other is namos, that's Greek for law. So or oikonomia means house law. So the economy, and an economy in this limited sense, is the law of the household or the management of the household. So someone who was an uh, oikonomos was a steward. Now, can anybody tell me what a steward is <coughs> besides someone's name? What's a steward? Someone who manages. Someone who manages, a manager. Right, right. Uh, someone who manages, someone who is receiving divine training, uh, God's divine training of his people. They, God uses this word, Paul uses this word in 1 Timothy 1.4, where the ESV translates it as stewardship. Here's the verse. Let's see if we have that up there. Uh, Nor to devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies, which promotes speculations rather than the stewardship, that's what, there it is, Akonomos, from God, that is by faith. So a steward, a steward is a manager of an owner's resources. The steward doesn't own anything, but the steward is hired as a manager for the owner. And so the steward is responsible to his employer for all of the assets that he manages. And so this is the biblical doctrine of stewardship. Psalm 24, verse 1 says this about the Lord owning everything. It says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and and those who dwell therein. So what's that telling us? Does God own some things? He owns everything in the world. He is the owner. Here's another verse that reveals this truth to us. First Chronicles 29 verse 14 says this. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to thus offer willingly? For all things come from you and of your own have we given you. So 
God owns it all. That's the first rule of biblical economics. God owns everything. And men are responsible as God's appointed representatives on earth to manage those things for the owner, God. God has given us that responsibility. He has hired us as stewards, right? And so we are responsible for everything that we've been given by the Lord to do well and to yield a profit for his kingdom. And as you know, does this only apply to Christians? Are Christians, are they the only ones that have received things from God? Obviously not. No, we, have, we know lots of non-Christians, non-believers who have lots of assets, who have lots of, um, uh, lots of responsibility that has been given to them by God. And they will be held to account as to how they manage it. Right. And so how many of you have thought, wow, this guy is such a this person or these people are such pagans, yet they have all of this power and all this responsibility. Is God ever going to hold them to account for how they're mismanaging everything? Is he ever going to do that? Like, have you ever just thought that before? Just in a moment of just frustration? Yeah, absolutely. It seems like God is not going to judge people for their mismanagement of his assets. But as uh, the Bible tells us in Luke 12, uh, it says that the true owner isn't going to delay forever in his demand for a full accounting of his stewards. In fact, this parable that Jesus gives in Luke 12 uh, provides us with the most important and I believe the clearest instruction in the Bible concerning God's final judgment and the eternal consequences of that judgment. And it comes down to this fundamental principle. God judges based on this principle. To whom much is given, much is required. That's it. To whom much is given, much is required. Here, uh, Luke 12, verse 45. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So this is a doctrine of full responsibility before God. That means every one of you sitting here in this room, we are all personally responsible for everything under our stewardship to God. You ever thought about that? That's a big responsibility, whether you're given little or you're given much. That's a huge responsibility. But this doctrine is crucial to understanding the Bible's message of salvation, right? We all know that all men are sinners, right? All men are sinners. That means all men are fully responsible for their actions and their stewardship before the Lord. And all men have failed miserably in managing their master's assets well. And no sinner can stand before God alone and expect to survive God's eternal wrath. And that includes every one of us sitting in this room. If we stand alone before God without an advocate, we will not expect to survive God's eternal wrath because we have managed God's assets poorly, right? 
See, without Jesus Christ as man's sin bearer, as man's redeemer, no man can survive. Think about yourself for a moment. Uh, Think about your time that you spent in Christian life class, in this Sunday school class. Um, Some of you guys have been sitting in this class for years, ever since Pastor Brandon started it, right? Years. And you have been listening to what has been said in this class uh, for a very long time. And just from this class alone, not counting all the hours of preaching and teaching that you hear on the Lord's Day or in, on, uh, in other uh, venues, you have more knowledge about God's plan of salvation and God's plan for damnation than most people have ever had before. Just from this class, an hour a week, right? And some of y'all have been coming for years. Some of you have been sitting under biblical, good biblical teaching all of your lives, Right? Uh, Not many uh, people who have heard what has been taught in this class about Jesus's work and its implication for the world. Not many people have heard as much as all of y'all have heard. This means that you are far more responsible before God right now than you were before you ever sat in this class. Right. And now you're going to have to give an account to God of all of your response to all of the information that has been presented to you over the years. You will also have to give an account to God of your handling of all of your personal assets, your financial assets, your family assets, all of these things from this point forward in terms of the message of this class today. There is no escape. You are responsible You now have the information that you are responsible before holy God to manage uh, all of the things he's given you in a righteous way. And it's your personal, inescapable task for the remainder of your life to work out the implications of your faith based on what you've heard here today in terms of the information that this class has supplied. And we are to work out the implications of our faith in fear and trembling, as Philippians 2.12 says. Amen. You ever thought about that responsibility? Now, praise God, we have an advocate with the father who can who knows our shortcomings and who has paid for all of the sins and all of our lack of management (laughs) up to uh, in our lives thus far. We have an advocate with the father. There is hope. But without Jesus, we cannot stand. There's no way. There's no way we can stand and expect to survive. But that doesn't mean now that you're saved and you, you're relying upon Christ in faith that you are thereby absolved of responsibility that you hear in the, in the information that you hear in Scripture. No, it, uh, the Scripture says if you hear all of these things and you have tasted of this heavenly gift and you reject it, it's going to be far worse than, uh, than the person who's never heard it before. So that's something to beware of. It's something to be sober about. God owns it all. And we are responsible uh, to yield a return for our Lord and Master. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, the Bible says that God owns it all, including all the souls in the universe. And he uses everything and everyone for his own good and righteous purposes. Amen. No one can resist his will. But man, who was made in the image of God and who still has that image after the fall and it's twisted and perverted and marred uh, at his very being, we still have the responsibility and we've still been appointed by God to be his steward. And that means, here are the implications of this, that means that every man and woman in this room is an oikonomos, an economist. 
Every person in this room is an economist. You may say, well, I don't know the first thing about the economy. Well, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm teaching you this, right? Because like it or not, whether you understand what economics is all about, you still make economic decisions each and every day. Each man and woman in this room uh, makes decisions concerning the resources under his administration, right? He chooses what to do with the assets that he's given to him by God. And by saying yes to one possible decision to use resources, he's saying no to all of the other possible uh, uses of resources. We do this every day, right? Every dollar we spend, we think in economics. Uh, Every resource, every uh, every bit of time that we put into a project or, or something that we do means that we don't spend time on other things, right? So we are all been given... Uh, an account, and we've all been given things to manage, and we're all an economist. And we are responsible for every single decision that we ever make. And this concludes all our economic decisions. And all economic resources are inescapably personal. They're personal. We have a universe of cosmic personalism. I can't talk today. Personalism. Excuse me. What does that mean? Well, that means that the world is not controlled by blind forces. That it's not just this thing happens, therefore this thing happens. Without any person or without any people behind it. Right? Our world is inescapably personal. See, we've swallowed the worldview that the world isn't personal. Is evolution personal? Is there any personal forces uh, managing and uh, controlling the process of the theory of evolution? No, not at all. It's all chance, blind chance, right? But that's not how a Christian should think. That's not how a Christian should live. That's not how the world is. Everything is controlled by a sovereign God. So everything that we do, everything that happens in this world and in our lives are personal. These are personal things. There are no impersonal historical forces guiding our decisions, as the communists and socialists would like to think, as Karl Marx would like to think, right? The world is governed by a personal God. Therefore, all assets must be personally owned. They are. God owns them all. And he may delegate the control over an asset to a man or to a family unit or to a unit of the civil government. But all men are involved in the allocation decisions at every level, uh, individually and collectively. God is both one and many, right? He's a trinity. And therefore, responsibility of how we manage assets and manage things can be both individualistic and corporate, right? God holds individuals responsible for his laws, but he also holds whole societies responsible for his laws, which is why he wiped out the Canaanites and other various pagans in the scriptures, right? So he holds societies responsible. He holds individuals responsible. He is one. He is many. That's how he judges. And so this, uh, the diehard collectivist who believes that all property should be collectively owned Uh, that the state or the party should own all scarce economic resources is denying one aspect of lawful economics. He is denying one aspect of man's reflection of God's nature, the individualistic nature, right? 
And at the same time, let's say we have the collectivist status here who believes that corporately uh, everything should be owned by a society or corporate entity. On the other side, we have the pure anarchist or the individualist who denies the, lawful, the lawfulness of the state at all as a property manager. And also denies, and he also denies an important aspect of human society. He denies the collective. He denies the one. Because he also denies one aspect of God's being, which is the collective sharing of the responsibility of decision-making. Okay? So the question for any economic order is where the proper balance is. Where is the proper balance between the one and the many? What is the proper balance of the responsibility between the state? You know, y'all know what I mean by the state. I'm not talking about Louisiana. I'm talking about the civil government when I say state. Okay. So what is the proper responsibility or the balance of responsibility between the state and the individual? Uh, or the responsibility between corporate entities like the family and the church or between corporate business and the individuals, right? Well, we're not going to know without God's revelation in Scripture to guide us. So this should be the first place that we look to for guidance in economics. Amen? Should be God's word. God's word has plenty to say about economics. Because look, men will rely either on God's testimony concerning himself and his social creation, or else they're going to rely on their own rebellious fantasies, and they will rely on their own ideas of what the balance should be. Right? And we have plenty of examples from the 20th century of people relying on their own rebellious fantasies on what uh, economics looks like. And so we have to start with, an under, with understanding economics from a biblical perspective. And the first place to always start is the sovereignty of God. That's where we start. Because he is the owner of all creation. He's the owner. Second, all ownership must be personal. It must be personal. And third... All men are fully responsible for all of their economic decisions. I see some note takers, so I'll slow down a little bit. Fourth, as we learned in Genesis 3, verses 17 through 19, the earth is cursed. It's cursed. Now, instead of the the earth working for us to uh, have prosperity, it works against us. Right. It brings up thorns. It brings up thistles to interfere with our stewardship, which is a dominion stewardship. Uh, Another way to say it is that now God, after the fall, he has brought this thing called scarcity into the equation. Now there's scarcity. There wasn't scarcity before. Now there's scarcity. Now, what is scarcity? That sounds like a really fancy word. Scarcity. Well, the best uh, definition that economists have come up with is this one. It's this one. It says, at zero price, there will be more demand for an economic good than supply of that good. Okay? I'll say that again. Scarcity is this. At zero price, there will be more of a demand for an economic good than the supply of that good. When something's scarce, what does that mean? There's not enough of it to go around. That's exactly right. Right. So uh, what would be an example of something that is scarce? Eggs. Eggs. (laughs) Amen. Eggs. Right. Now, whether this is a manufactured scarcity or not is up for debate. But yes, eggs. It's one of them. What's another one? Gold. Gold. 
Bitcoin. Yes. Is paper money a scarcity these days? <laughs> Never mind. Quick, quick, quick question. So here's an example of something that's not scarce. Air is not an economic good in most cases. Why? Because at zero price, there is more of a supply for air than the demand for it. Right? That's why we can't sell air. Right? It's not the Lorax. We cannot sell air. Right? Because at zero price, there is more supply of air than demand for it. Now, is this always the case? It's not true if you're underwater in a submarine. Right? Things change at that point. Air becomes scarce. Or if you're on top of a tall mountain. Or if the air is in the tanks on the back of a scuba diver. Right? So air can be scarce in those situations, but in most normal situations, air is not a scarcity. Air is not an economic good. Okay? Um, It's also, uh, air can uh, also be scarce if it is, uh, if cool air is what we're after. Right? So cool air in the summer or warm air in the winter. It's not true of filtered air in a city, right? Filled with pollution or a farm filled with dust. But for staying alive in most instances, it is not necessary to put a price tag on air. So we don't need to allocate air to the highest bidder. That's, that kind of good is not an economic good. Air is useful. Amen. It's life-sustaining. Amen. But it is not an economic good. All right. Uh, it is not the subject of human choice. It is not a resource. Air isn't a resource that requires man's decisions in order to allocate it. Right? This seems like common sense, right? This is simple enough. But how many of you have ever thought about that before? Yeah. You'd be surprised at how many people have never thought about it and how many uh, have come up with definitions of scarcity that are just not that great. Right? Uh, the most influential economist of the 20th century was John Maynard Keynes. And, uh, and in the concluding notes of uh, a very influential book he wrote, uh, The General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money, he said this, quote, The owner of capital can obtain interest because capital is scarce. But whilst there may be intrinsic reasons for the scarcity of land, there are no intrinsic reasons for the scarcity of capital, end quote. But capital is simply the combination by man of land, which he admitted uh, may be intrinsically scarce, and labor, including intellectual labor, over time. Now, I'll just break that down, what that means for you. Uh, That means that uh, nature is abundant. That's his, he has a totally opposite worldview of of, of, of fallen creation. He believes John Maynard Keynes believes that uh, uh, air and uh, the abundance in uh, everything is abundantly available for man uh, if man would just get out of the way. It is because of man and his greed, uh, the individual's capitalist greed, which is why the abundance of resources cannot be shared with the whole world. That's why there's poverty, because we won't get out of the way and let the abundance of nature uh, feed us all. Um, so somebody, uh, we need to take this, uh, this power away from these individual corporate entities. And we need to let someone who really has the people in mind to be able to manage these assets for them. That's the way everybody can get their fair share. And who did John Maynard Keynes say is the best entity to do that? The state. 
the state. Now, biblically, should the state have anything to do with managing assets and, and managing these sorts of things in the Bible? Now, what's the state's job? Yes, curse, uh, punish evil, reward good. Doesn't have anything to do with everybody uh, giving all of their assets to the state and having the state manage it and give everybody else equal shares in the name of equity. No, that's not how it works. No, here's the big theme of all socialists and communists. They deny the biblical doctrine that the creation is cursed. They deny that. They believe the opposite. They believe that nature, when it is untouched by man, is naturally abundant. But they say that it's man and it's his institutions that have held back this natural abundance for us all. If only we would destroy private property, we'll be able to live once again as our ancient forefathers did in total abundant communism. So this is the communist version of Eden. They want to return to a golden age. And in the case of Marxism, they want to return. They want a return that's initiated by bloodshed and revolution. Basically, the theology of human and social sacrifice as an alternative to Christ's sacrifice. So they expect man to be regenerated and nature to be regenerated through the establishment of the collective ownership of property. The state needs to manage property and they need to own the property and give it out to us. They believe that man will regenerate himself uh, by tearing out all of the present social and uh, political institutions by the roots. We need to get rid of the way things are right now because this is not... This is not beneficial to the poor. This is not beneficial to those who uh, are not getting their fair share. And look, this is an old heresy. This isn't anything new. Uh, You know, this goes back to the ancient chaos festivals uh, in the ancient world where uh, they once a year do these ritual law-breaking festivals. And they thought that having this chaos and going back to chaos will actually put life back into society. And so the festivals were meant to be symbols of the coming revolution of chaos, which would eventually return society to the lost golden age. And believe it or not, that's actually part of the origins of Mardi Gras in the United States and Carnival in the Caribbean. Mardi Gras and Carnival, they are are festivals that are remnants in some sense of the older chaos festivals. Now, I'm not saying it's not okay to go out and catch some beads. Y'all can go go out and catch some beads, but it's good to be informed about these things. Where did these festivals come from? You can notice how chaotic they are, right? If you go to New Orleans on on Fat Tuesday, you you can definitely see how everybody is degenerating into chaos. But they believe, you know, those old ancient heresies, they believe that chaos would remake the world into a new place, into a better place. But how many of us know that order does not come about from chaos? No, God makes order. It comes from him. So um, they don't believe that imposing God's law law order found in the scripture uh, that that we'll have dominion over the earth. They don't believe that. And uh, they don't believe that uh, God's law and the obeying of God's law by God's covenant people Uh, will eventually eliminate the effects of God's curse on the creation. No, they don't believe any of those things. They believe that heaven on earth is going to happen through throwing out God's law order. And look, we need to wipe the slate clean. And we need to get rid of all of those bourgeois institutions. 
And, and Marxists believe in getting rid of God's law and getting rid of all of the God-ordained institutions, all except one, right? The state. They want to keep that one. And, and they think that that is what is going to get rid of scarcity in nature. And so they expect that the state owning everything is going to bring forth abundance and eliminate scarcity in the world. They want to rely on the expansion of state power and the elimination of private property to bring paradise on earth, heaven on earth. See, they have an eschatology. They have a vision of the future. And they believe that uh, this is the way. Chaos is the way. And they believe that it isn't God, but it is the state that regenerates people and societies. They believe that the state is the highest and most powerful representative of man on earth. So the state, in other words, is God to them. Y'all see that? The state is God to them. Just like it was in ancient pagan societies, in the ancient world of paganism, the state was seen as the link between heaven and earth. It was through the state. And, you know, of course, modern pagans these days, they deny the existence or the relevance of the gods because they deny the existence of anything sovereign above the state. Right. If there's no God up there, there has to be a God somewhere. You cannot you cannot deny this fact. Man is made to worship. Man is made to worship a God. So if there's no God out there, there's no transcendence. There's only eminence. Then who are they going to worship? Themselves through the collective agency of the state, right? But in reality, the sovereign owner of everything isn't collective man. It isn't the state. It's who? Who owns it all? Again, God, the triune God. And he is the sovereign owner of everything in the world. And he has made a covenant with the world with laws of administration by which responsible men both as individuals and as members of collective agencies, are to steward. They're to manage and allocate the resources of their employer, their employer being God. And because of man's constant tendency to elevate himself into the position of uh, ultimate sovereign over the creation, the Bible consciously and consistently decentralizes responsibility. That means uh, God does not give all the responsibility to one sphere, to one institution, right? Why does God do that? Why does God choose to decentralize everything? Because we're all sinners, right? Uh, Absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? So God knows that we are sinners and ultimate power is going to corrupt us. So he has purposefully decentralized responsibility so that doesn't happen. And in a Christian society, the state is drastically restricted and kept small by biblical law. And you see, the state, according to the Bible, only has a few jobs, right? Just a few. Uh, it announces God's law, it enforces God's law, and it handles disputes between men in terms of God's law through a hierarchy of appeals courts. And its function is almost entirely negative. It has a negative function. Now, if you don't know what, that, what I mean by that, Uh, I would encourage you to listen to the last lecture on the state that I gave in my systematic theology class at CCA. And those are on sermon audio if you look them up. So but the, the state's function is entirely negative in scope. So the state is not that means the state is not to initiate and come up with public policy. 
in a positive sense, right? So the state is not supposed to have an army of code enforcers that come around and make sure uh, you, know, you have a railing around your roof. No, what's the state supposed to do? If someone falls off of your roof, what are they supposed to do? Hold you accountable for it. They're not supposed to check beforehand whether you have the railing on it. That's your responsibility. But, but if somebody falls off that roof and gets hurt or gets killed, you are responsible. So in that sense, the state has a negative function. The state is not to come up with codes and public policy. The state instead is supposed to adjudicate. It's supposed to judge cases and execute the law of the land, which is based on the law found in the Bible, both Old and New Testaments. The state is supposed to provide a society with support for preserving peace. And and the men of that society, acting as responsible stewards under God, acting both individually and collectively, Uh, Through voluntary associations, they are the ones who are supposed to manage the scarce means of production. The whole thing is decentralized. And the Bible has a lot to say about this. I'm only scratching the surface, right? So now let's talk about uh, self-government and the family, okay? Real quick. You can probably guess what I'm about to say, right? The the, The primary positive form of discipline in God's law order is what? Remember, I said the negative is the, prime, is, is the state. That's the primary enforcer in the negative sense. What's the primary positive form of discipline? Self-discipline. Maybe I didn't know what I was about to say. Self-discipline. Self-government. And this is true in the family household. This is true in the institutional church. And this is true in the civil government. It's also true in the economy. So it's the individual worker who is supposed to exercise dominion for the Lord. And he's called to his work by God himself. Right? This is why we say that a man's job is his vocation or his calling. Because God calls him to this work. Because man is ultimately subordinate to God. And this is why Paul's command is the central command for all economic activity. And, it's, and the command is this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation. This is between you and God in this vocation, in this calling. Okay? And going along with the subordination to God, which also exists in the family, the institutional church, and the civil government, the economy provides intermediate levels of responsibility as well. It has a hierarchy, just like all the other spheres, which reflects the hierarchy of the Trinity in God's relationship with the world. We, have, we all have separate tasks as laborers, right? Uh, I don't do exactly what Jordan does, right? We're all diversified in our labor. There is a division there, right? And we are all responsible for our own work. And, and every one of us has to answer, not only to God, but to somebody else on earth as well. Right? How many of us have a boss who you've met and shook their hand, their flesh and blood? Yes. Uh, some of you may say, well, I own my own business. I am the boss. No, you have many bosses. You have customers. Lots of bosses. Right? And so you not only are accountable directly to God for the, the work that you do, uh, you are also accountable. God also uh, uh, helps you and guides you and keeps you accountable through other human mean, uh, means, through other people, right? We all have that. 
Whether we're retired, whether we're working, whatever, we all have that. We all have someone on earth to whom we are accountable. Uh, and, and understand this, whenever a person claims that in his own capacity he answers only to God and to no other man-made institution, you know what he's doing, right? He's asserting his own divinity in history. He's setting himself up as a little God. And that is sin. Cannot do that. And it ends up being insubordination to God because God has established hierarchies in the world that every man is supposed to submit to. Uh, it's like the, uh, the divine right of kings in the early uh, modern period of the history of Europe. Is there anybody familiar with the divine right of kings? Anybody give me like a short, short sentence as to what that is? The divine right of kings. Yes, a king, a king of England, the kings of England for a little while, they said, I only answer to God. I can do whatever I want and no other institution on this earth can hold me accountable or judge me. This comes directly from God. Is this a good or a bad doctrine? Bad. It's very bad, right? It was a misused doctrine. It was the doctrine of unmediated authority. So authority that refused to submit to any other authority. It was unmediated authority between God and man. And the divine right of kings was an assertion of an individual's independence from earthly judgment. It was an assertion of personal autonomy. And it was an assertion that the king was not under law. Everybody else is under law, but the king is not under law. No, he's not under law. He's, this is also an assertion of antinomianism as well. I have no law to follow. Rex Lex. The, law, the king is law. Right? That's why Samuel Rutherford wrote, it, wrote his book the other way around. Lex Rex. Law is king. And so this divine right of kings, as it's misused, it means that an individual is free to rebel against any authority and all authority in time and on earth in the name of his sole allegiance to God. Right. And this means that the individual doesn't have to answer to anyone until he dies. See, a person who acts this way really believes that he is a God on earth. And he believes that no person stands above him in the name of God to call him to account. And whenever we find this doctrine uh, in the family, let's say there's a husband or father, head of household who thinks this way, they're usually tyrants, aren't they? Yes. yes. Or, or uh, the in, in the institutional church. You usually find pastors, elders, and leaders who have abused their authority and think they are not accountable to anyone but God as tyrants. Um, or we see it in the civil government. We definitely see that in the civil government. Does our civil government have anyone to which he's accountable to in his mind? No, no. The state believes they are the highest authority in the land. And that if there is no, there is no God to, for, to hold accountable to, we are God. Therefore, pay your taxes. All 60% of your income. Pay it. Right? So, we find all these things if individuals act on these doctrines. We find these things uh, in uh, institutions who claim the divine right of kings. What do we find when we see uh, the state claiming the divine right of king? Well, we see tyranny. We see arbitrariness. We see centralization. You know, or for the director or the directors of that institution, they're essentially saying that as representatives of this institution, they are beyond criticism from other men or other institutions. They are essentially making the claim that the institution, their institution, is God on earth. Tyranny, arbitrariness, 
centralization. Does all that sound familiar to you right now? Definitely, definitely. But Christianity rejects this doctrine of unmediated authority, whether it's used by anarchistic individuals or power-hungry institutions. Right? Have you thanked God for your boss lately? Chirp, chirp. (laughs) I hope so. He's been sent by God to you to hold you accountable and to guide you and to help you to, uh, to perform your vocation to the glory of God. Right? We need to pray for our leaders. We need to pray for our bosses. If we own our own business and we have many customers, we need to pray for our customers. We need to treat them, uh, treat, treat them justly. Right? If you don't, I mean, what's going to happen? They're all going to fire you. And then you don't have any work. Right? So <clears throat> we cannot think that we are uh, only accountable to God. That's such a, a prevalent worldview these days. Uh, we have to reject that. We have to get that out of our system, right? So Orthodox Christianity rejects this divine right of kings of, of anything or anyone in time and on earth except with Jesus Christ, right? He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He's the only one that can make that claim, right? So Jesus, but what did Jesus do? He humbled himself before God and man in order to bridge the gap between God and man, And because of that, Jesus has the name above every name, and it's Christ alone who has the monopoly of a divine right. So I hope this class helped. I'm I'm done for now. Um, Any any questions or comments or anything worth mentioning? It's a huge subject. I barely scratched the surface of it. But I think the the key takeaways that you should get in, in economics is, number one, God owns everything. And number two, we're all responsible for all of the things that we've been given by God to steward well for him. Everything, even the smallest little screw in your house, God has given us the, this screw as a way to glorify him and to work for his glory. Right. All of those things matter. Um, it matters with time, how we spend our time. You know, the Lord gives us time. He gives us life. He gives us a certain amount of it, and we're all responsible to the Lord as to how we use it. So we must use it well for his glory. We must, at, least, at least I want you to have a category that the Bible has something to say about these things. Because it's not taught anymore. Right? Yeah. So any questions, thoughts? Yes. Do what you say, essentially. No. 
No, we need to pray for them. We need to pray that they also understand their calling given to them by God to manage those who have been under their charge, right? Because all of us being under someone who is a manager, that person's also responsible to God for how they manage you, right? And so they need to understand that. And so they need lots of prayer. That's a, it, yeah, it's a, it's a big topic, but I, I mentioned it quite at length in the last lecture. So I would go there and, and listen to that. Anything else? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for um, giving us insight on this most important topic of economics. Father, help us to remember as we go about our day, as we go about our week, uh, the six days we are to work, we are to work for you. And we have a responsibility with all the, th- the good things that you've given to us to yield a return, to yield uh, and to make good on an investment. So, Father, help us with this. Help us to give us the thirst for the knowledge of what to do and the wisdom of what to do in our, in our callings to better glorify you. And Father, help us to, uh, more importantly, be good and faithful witnesses uh, to those in the world and, and to uh, honor you and glorify you with the work that we do. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.